listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And on today's episode, we are discussing Black Sabbath's sixth album, Sabotage. Sabotage was recorded and released in 1975. Embroiled in legal battles with their former managers, the band would let out all their anger and frustration during the writing process for the album. And the end result was some of Black Sabbath's most furious music to date. Tony Iommi and Mike Butcher produced the album, and it continued in the more experimental style that had begun on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, with Iommi layering multiple guitar parts and Bill Ward experimenting with drum sounds. The band even took their adventurous spirit onto the album cover, where the band would be dressed in bright colored 70s fashion, with Bill Ward trying out a pair of his wife's tights for the photo session. The end result? one of the band's more, quote, memorable, unquote, album covers. Eight songs in total, Symptom of the Universe, the instrumental Don't Start Too Late, Hole in the Sky, Megalomania, Thrill of It All, Super Czar, Am I Going Insane Radio, and The Writ, as well as a hidden bonus track, but more on that bonus track a little later. The album would mark the end of another chapter in the band's history, where from this point forward, drugs and distractions would begin to take their toll on the band, eventually leading to the departure of Ozzy. The band would tour extensively for the album with the Sabotage Tour beginning on July 14th, 1975 and ending on January 13th, 1976. Songs from the album played live would be Symptom of the Universe, Hole in the Sky, Megalomania, and Superzar would be used as their intro tape music. The Sabotage Tour would also give us one of Sabbath's most treasured live bootlegs. August 5th, 1975 in Asbury Park, New Jersey would be recorded for the King Biscuit Flower Hour, a nationally syndicated radio program. This show would capture Black Sabbath performing a killer set chock full of sabotage numbers. Also of note, Sabbath would be filmed on September 4th, 1975 at the Santa Monica Civic Center for the TV program, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Five songs from the show would be broadcast on TV on October 25th, 1975. All right, so Darren, what are your early memories and your thoughts on Sabotage? Okay, so this is the last Ozzy era Black Sabbath album that I, I bought. I didn't, I didn't know much about it. Um, there wasn't, it wasn't a, a lot of press about Black Sabbath at the time that I was getting into them. You know, Ozzy uh, had already launched his solo career and, and Black Sabbath moving along with, with their career with Ronnie James Dio as a singer. But there wasn't a lot of talk about the previous albums. I did, however, buy We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll, the compilation, the, the two record compilation album. And on that album, there was one song from Sabotage 
and that's uh, Am I Going Insane Radio. Um, so that was pretty much what I was going, what I was coming into expecting when I bought Sabotage. I wasn't really in a hurry to get it. Um, I hadn't heard anything from it. I had no reason to, sus to suspect it was as good as it was, or it was the kind of album that it was. So when I did buy the album, I was really surprised. I was taken back. You might even say I was sort of like in shock at how heavy it was. And I mean, it was not, it was, it's heavy. It's dark. Um, I probably should have, if there was any way for me to, you know, the other thing about this album though, is you didn't see it in stores a lot. And I probably would have picked it up sooner had it, had it been a more popular album that was stocked in, in the record stores at the time, but it was really pretty hard to find. In fact, I remember where I got it. I got it in my town at a, at a the local record store. They had it there. That was the only place I saw it. And I was surprised to see it there. But anyway, when I, when I took it home, I, I put it on and hole in the sky started. And then I just went from song to song. I mean, I was blown away. I couldn't believe how heavy it was. And moreover, I couldn't believe that the only song, I mean, so many good songs, uh, hooks, heavy riffs. It, it, it's a great album. And I was kind of surprised that of this album, the only album that was on the compilation, uh, We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll, that they, they pulled off of the sabotage was Am I Going Insane? Not that it's a bad song. It's just, I mean... <laughs> It's a bit of a strange choice for that. Yeah. And I forgot to mention that that compilation came out during the uh, Sabotage tour. So it came out, you know, not long after the Sabotage album came out. We're talking about yeah. We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll. But yeah, I agree with you. It was strange that the song that they did pick from Sabotage, only one song, and it was Am I Going Insane? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I mean, I've talked to people that were roughly my age that had said that they were kind of in the same boat. They hadn't heard anything from it. There weren't any hits. You know, you didn't hear any of it on the radio or anything. I mean, we could hear Iron Man on the radio. We could hear War Pigs on the, way, on the radio, Children of the Grave. There weren't any songs from this that were on the radio. Uh, but people that were roughly my age had uh, heard Speak of the Devil. So they were familiar with Symptom of the Universe. So going, So when they bought Sabotage, they were already familiar with that. I didn't even have that. So when I heard Symptom of the Universe, man, it just blew my mind. I mean, that riff, it, it, it's, it's easily, in a lot of ways, probably the heaviest Black Sabbath album ever. I mean, you, you, I, I was going to say up to this point, but I, I think it's probably the heaviest Black Sabbath album. Every, everything is just firing on all cylinders. It's, uh, it, it's great. The songs are great. The performances are great. Uh, Iomi's tone is ridiculously heavy. I mean, especially as we'll go further along in the discussion, we start talking about the song specifically. I'll, I'll get into that, but his, his tone is noticeably heavier. Geezer's bass is heavy. Bill, some of the drum fills are incredible. Um, so yeah, I mean, my impression was I was completely blown away. About you. Yeah, I had a, had a similar thing. I mean, for me, I at this point, I had all the previous previous albums. And uh, really, once I got Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, then I just moved sort of in order. 
And uh, as I mentioned in our Sabbath Bloody Sabbath podcast, uh, when I got Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, I was I was so into Ozzy. I was so into Black Sabbath. I had Diary of a Madman. I had Blizzard of Oz. I was just so into the whole thing. <clears throat> so when I got Sabotage, I had a similar reaction. It just seemed so heavy. The riffing, uh, Symptom of the Universe, Hole in the Sky, it, it also had sort of a really dark feel to some of the stuff too, like megalomania and the writ. Uh, I just, I just absolutely, absolutely loved it. Uh, it was, it felt to me like, uh, sonically it felt different to me than any of the previous Sabbath, uh, Sabbath albums. Iomi's guitar sound, like you mentioned, is, is really, really heavy. He's got a kind of a, a bit of a brighter upper mid-range sound to the guitar on this. Like Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, there's a lot of layered guitars, there's acoustic guitars here and there. There's a lot going on. It's kind of a, a good headphone album. And I've mentioned this before that I'm a big fan of that, being able to put headphones on. And I love hearing lots of guitars and acoustic guitars and different things going on. So, uh, yeah, when I when I got it, I had a, the, the same reaction as you. And it was it was sort of a mysterious album because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't have the We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll compilation uh, yet. I had gotten Sabotage before Speak of the Devil. So <clears throat> it was all new to me. So when I heard Symptom of the Universe and Hole in the Sky, I mean, it was just it was, it was just a heavy album. And, and being that I was so into them at that point and was so blown away by Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and, and, and uh, volume four and everything, it just, it felt like the next step. And I have very fond memories of, of, of getting this. And like you, I can remember my original cassette. I was trying to re remember this exactly, but it was, the casing of it was different than all my other Warner Brothers Sabbath cassettes. I can't remember what it was about it, but there was something different about the casing. Uh, I used to take it with me in my Walkman, go for walks in the woods. I can remember where I listened to it for the very first time. I, I, I put it in my Walkman. I walked in my backyard and I didn't even quite make it into the woods. I was so floored that I went and we had a shed in our backyard. I went and sat against the shed and just listened to the whole thing and was just like, wow. And then I put started it at the beginning again and walked into the woods and listened to it again. And I was just so, I was just so into it. I was absolutely floored. There's some killer, uh, some of Ozzy's best. This is Ozzy kind of his voice at its highest. His yeah. voice also at this point, he's in that upper range that he was in on Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, but there's a mm -hmm. little bit more distortion and grit to mm -hmm. it when he gets into the upper range of his voice. One can maybe make the argument that this is where he starts damaging uh, his voice a little bit. Uh, but Ozzy is at the peak of his powers here. Uh, the bass is super heavy on this, on this record. Geezer's bass tone is just distorted and heavy. Iomi sounds great. Bill is all over it. Like you said, just, just a really uh, fantastic yeah. album. And even the album cover, you know, I was thinking of this today that uh, there really aren't, 
there's no other Black Sabbath album cover that has all of the band on the cover. You have volume four, which is kind of like a watercolor drawing thing. That's not really a picture. You have but, Naomi on the cover of Seven Star and uh, that, that's it. So at the time, this is gonna sound really sort of silly, but being that I, I wasn't seeing a lot of stuff about Black Sabbath in the magazines and everything. So having a picture of them on the cover and it was such a sort of a, a strange cover with the mirror and everything. And it yeah. sort of added to the, to, to the psychedelic trippy nature of some of the lyrics and the songs on the record. So it's so just an album that I absolutely love. Yeah, and um, well, with regard to Volume Four, that that actually was a photo, but it was um, it was edited um, that way. The, the photo of Ozzy flashing the peace sign—that is actually a, a photo, but it was it was processed in such a way where it was really saturated. And that deluxe box set, that Volume Four box set, on one of the records that comes inside, if not maybe even the cover—I don't have it right in front of me—but uh, that's the actual photograph that that ended up on the album version but let's talk about the album cover sabotage it's pretty interesting when you made a lot of references to how that sort of uh is is part of the charm part of the personality of the album well that wasn't really what was intended um the the original concept and design for the album sabotage was conceived by bill ward's drum tech graham wright and what he had envisioned was that the band was going to be inside of a castle, like a Dracula's castle type setting. And they were all gonna be dressed in black and behind each member was going to be a mirror where it had the same motif as what ended up on the actual cover where they were facing front. So the, the, the concept was that there was sabotage going on, like the, the mirror there was something strange about how the mirror wasn't reflective of their actual image. But the cover was supposed to be a very gothic uh, Dracula's castle setting with, with the band all dressed in black. It didn't happen that way. What <laughs> happened was they had everybody come to the, to the, to the photo studio to do some test photos. So everybody just kind of showed up wearing what, what they would normally wear. Ozzy at the time was wearing, had a tendency to wear these kimonos. Bill Ward uh, was wearing his favorite black leather jacket and his wife, his wife's tights, his wife's name was Misty. He said, I was wearing Misty's tights, but I wasn't wearing any underwear. So Ozzy, little known fact is that Ozzy isn't wearing any underwear underneath his kimono. I had to borrow Ozzy's underwear to put on so that I could put my tights on over top and I wouldn't be naked from the waist down. He said, Geezer was casual that day. Tony looked like he just came from the office. So they all just took various poses. They took a few pictures. And then as it turned out, the record company told Graham that, no, 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 this isn't gonna be for the cover. We're just taking some test shots. But then as things progressed, they took Graham's idea of the mirror they applied that to the photos that they took. And then they just said to the band, no, 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 it looks good. It'll be fine. End of story. And that's what came out. So 
I mean, as it turns out, it, it is cool. I mean, it definitely has a lot of personality and character to the album. And you're right. I mean, when I first picked it up, I thought, wow, this is so cool. You actually get to see the band members circa 1975. You know, I thought Bill Ward looked kind of strange, but Ozzy looked pretty cool, you know, with the cross. And I thought the kimono look and the high heels was, was kind of a cool thing. So, I mean, it did, it did give you a little bit of a, you know, extra added bonus to, to the Black Sabbath theme that you actually got to see the band as you were listening to the album, you held the album cover and you looked at the band. Uh, so it is pretty cool. Um, another thing regarding the background of this album, uh, before we get into a song by song uh, thing, the intention was for this album to be, according to Bill Ward, he wanted this out and the rest of the band had had decided they talked about it. They wanted this album to be more of a back to basics, heavy rock album. They were happy. They, they were pleased with the results of volume four and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. And it, they were considered those albums successes, but they wanted to kind of get back into a heavy rock album. And that was the intention behind Sabotage. Uh, but of course, like you said, there are a lot of layered guitars and things like that, that enhance that concept. But underneath it all, I think there is a heavier sound, especially when, when the album kicks off with Hole in the Sky. And that that's a very, that's a pretty direct, you know, heavy riffing, you know, that, that that's just a great meat and potatoes song that starts things off. Um, but they did kind of, according to Bill, they, they did want to get away from some of the, well, Ozzy said that it took too long to do Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. He said, he, you know, he was happy with the way that it came out. When all was said and done, they were all collectively pleased with it, but they wanted to kind of get things moving along. Well, best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. So by the time they got into the studio and started working on this, they got embroiled. They, they had just fired Patrick Meehan, their manager, who they, as we talked about on the Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, podcast they had started getting into issues with him well by the time they got into the studio to do sabotage he had been fired he is in the process of suing them they're in the process of counter suing they currently had no manager the one manager i think that they had signed on to at some point along the way i forget his name but it was really sort of irrelevant at the time because they were basically a band that were managerless at the time that this album was coming out. And that's kind of what the backdrop was. That was what sort of shaped this album. The, the intention was to do a heavy rock album, but what made this album sound the way that it does it, with the anger and some of the lyrical content was everything that transpired while they got into the studio and while they were recording it. They were sometimes in the studio and there were lawyers in the room they were, they were sometimes in the studio having to discuss some of the legal things that they were going to go to court for. Um, and they were, they were wrestling with subpoenas uh, and things like that. So it was really a tense, stressful situation at the time. And I think that's where a lot of the aggression, the anger and the heaviness comes from, which is cool that they at least were able to channel that into the music and, and put out a, a great product. You know, if you're going to be under that kind of situation, that kind of stress, the best you could hope for is that it somehow translates to something creative. And it did. And, and that's great. That, that, that's a great thing about the album. Uh, 
interesting another side note that that's kind of funny when I, when they were without a manager when they finally severed ties with Patrick Meehan they had decided that Bill Ward was going to act as their manager and he was going to take the money he was going to do the accounting he was going to collect the money and he was going to go to the bank geezer said that it, it kind of kind of got to bill's head so he would dress up in a suit and he'd carry a brief briefcase and he'd go to the bank and he'd make these transactions but on the way there because he was an alcoholic he'd get really drunk so he'd sometimes forget some of the receipts and things that he got from the bank to come back and and keep a proper accounting so that was a fail they said but god bless him he had all good intentions and he tried his hardest but because he was you know he was just such an alcoholic he just couldn't control himself and he just lost things on the way there or on the way back and it was a fail so they were dealing with that they were dealing with money problems and you know bad accounting and things like that i mean things were just all over the place but in the end this album came out and i mean at least they applied all of those things all of those troubles and 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 issues that they were going through at least they applied it to to the creative process that resulted in this album so yeah you can definitely hear it in the in the record and in the lyrics this is this is an album that uh they're, they're on a few occasions really talking about what's going on in their personal lives which is something they really didn't do before this a lot of geezer's lyrics tended to be environmental things stuff about war or they were just more psychedelic type lyrics like spiral architect and and uh, things like that uh and i think this this album you could say in some ways is the beginning of the end for the band and i don't mean that in the sense that it it, it didn't affect the quality of the album or the music on the album but this is where the, as we as you were talking about the lawyers the legal trouble the legal battles uh drugs and alcohol now are they're, they're approaching the point of really affecting the band ozzy is becoming displeased with the amount of time that they're spending in the studio to make these records this is also the first if you look at i forgot to write down the sales numbers but this album was a step down yeah. sales wise a pretty significant step down sales wise yeah. from all the previous other albums so when you combine all these things the touring fatigue yeah the legal troubles the the drugs all that stuff this is sort of for me i think where it 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 sort of starts for the band and it all that stuff comes out through the songs and it and it really works and like we've mentioned a, a bunch of times already it makes for a really sort of angry uh self uh reflective album uh, reflecting their their state of mind they were in at that time uh but uh you know like i said with everything going on it's it's it it's it, it's maybe the album where sabbath they're not the commercial force. They begin to not be the commercial force they were from before this. Yeah, and I, and I think that's relative to uh, the management issues. I mean, had they had a secured management contract um, and somebody and a manager who was doing their job, there may have been a better promotion um, campaign behind this. Uh, I mean, some of it it's debatable as to how much would go to the record company, but I think the manager really kind of pushes that stuff 
through for the band. And, and I think that that's where this album kind of slips through the cracks. It didn't really have proper management. Um, also, the tour was cut short. I, I think that they, they did do all the dates in the US, but I think it, if I'm not mistaken, I think the UK leg of the tour was cut short because Ozzy got in a motorcycle accident and yeah. uh, they had to cut it short by a few weeks. So they lost some traction there too. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it definitely was when the band started to, it was the beginning of the end. Uh, mostly though, the, the drugs and alcohol, I remember I read that the geezer was starting to back away from a lot of the hard drugs. And certainly he was starting to back away from, from the alcohol. Uh, but Bill and Ozzy were full on raging alcoholics. And then while they were in that state, they had a propensity to do whatever else came their way. So drugs and alcohol were certainly a problem with at least half the band. And, uh, you know, and I mean, you know, a band obviously that that's compromised by half is, is not, you know, going to be that strong. <laughs> and, and that's what was happening. So yeah, you're right. I mean, drugs, drugs and alcohol were starting to take its toll. And, you know, I mean, earlier on in the career, it had become a recreational thing. And now, unfortunately, it, it had become, it, it had become, it was becoming a lifestyle in the previous two albums, but now it had become a lifestyle. And it was a lifestyle that was unfortunately beginning to conflict with their careers. So, yeah, that's where we are here. All right. Uh, well, let's get into some of the albums. So the album opens with Hole in the Sky, like you mentioned. I mean, this just comes out of the gate swinging. Uh, I always love that little, uh, you can hear the band in the studio there. I'm not sure what that is. Somebody like going, Rah! or whatever that little yeah. bit at the beginning, squeal. And then all I of a sudden, cool. I, lo I love that. Yeah. Super heavy, just super heavy riff kicks in. And again, Ozzy's vocals, he spends a lot of this album way up in the top part of his range. And, the, you know, this song this song especially it's just uh it's just ripping and this this would work in a live setting really well for the band yeah at, at this time it's just a great great live number i love the riff in it i love geezer's uh geezer's bass in it uh sort of the lyrical matter this is slightly psychedelic looking through a hole in the sky you know mm -hmm. psychedelic type yeah i mean geezer continuing with the great lyrics um really geezer started like really developing as a great lyricist on sabbath bloody sabbath and then uh it, it you know went on to this album too there's some some really great lyrics hole in the sky <clears throat> um according to bill again uh was uh from an environmental standpoint they were talking about you know pollution things that you know I guess were irrelevant at the time socially um, you know they wanted I guess people to take care of the world take care of the planet and that was geezer's intent behind the lyrics of hole in the sky but yeah I mean great way to start off the album kicks in no nonsense just straightforward heavy rock uh, to put it in a, in a current context you know I mean that riff I think Caius built an entire career on that. <laughs> Yeah, here's another example. We talked about our master of reality, how that sort of gave birth to the stoner rock thing. Everybody using orange amplifiers and trying to imitate <laughs> yeah. that that sound. But this right here, this sort of slightly groovy. It has a little bit of a groovy 
uh, sort of feel to swingy, groovy feel yeah. to it, but it's just still just super, super heavy and super crushing. And yeah, you're right. It's a stoner rock. Monster Magnet, all those bands. Like, yeah. It, it's definitely the backbone, backbone of the stoner rock movement. That's for sure. That riff. I mean, you can hear that and like, ooh, I don't know. I don't know how many versions of that riff in various in various ways you can hear on a lot of stoner rock albums cool i mean you know i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna take a, a great riff might as well might as well use that one um but the reason i bring that up is because you know that that song is that important i mean it it, it obviously affected people and uh was very influential so starting starting off the album right away you have the awesome hole in the sky and then there's that abrupt ending and it goes right into the sh that short sort of instrumental don't start too late mm -hmm. i believe the uh, story behind that album that song title was the uh the recording uh the guy at the desk came over the intercom and said don't start <laughs> but, <laughs> but they started and mm -hmm. so they just put that title on there don't start too late yeah. you know it's too late we started and yeah. i always i always love this is the kind of stuff that again at this time i'm totally into randy Rhodes. i'm into yeah. sabbath bloody sabbath sort of the, the the acoustic stuff on sabbath bloody sabbath and then this where it has that acoustic thing and it's a little bit of a classical feel to it with the overdubbed acoustic guitars and the way those fast running lines and everything like that it's just it's a super cool little mm -hmm. you have that pummeling swinging uh riff of hole in the sky and then that abrupt stop and it goes yeah. into this trippy classical acoustic guitar uh thing it, it it's it's actually like a brilliant one two three I, i'm gonna say punch one two three punch because it, it's just it's almost animated the way that you have that stop at the end of Hole in the Sky, and then it kicks in with, and, and it's kind of subdued. It's, it's, it's the, the guitar is a little bit low in the mix. It, it's kind of subtle, but it, it's very, the energy behind it has a lot of energy, you know? And then at the at the very end, with it doesn't increase in volume or dynamics, but that repeating guitar line, and then it kicks into that sick, heavy, Simpson of the Universe riff. I mean, it's just, it's a brilliant one, two, three song sequence. Um, yeah, and they flow one, right? Yeah. No break in between the, the three of them. And I, I remember as a kid, I, I didn't quite know what Don't Start Too Late or that was, okay, I guess that's the acoustic guitar because on a cassette, how are you supposed to know the difference? But yeah, when Symptom of the Universe then comes in, I mean, that it's, if you were, if we're making a, a list of Iomi's heaviest riffs, I don't see oh, yeah. even though the universe isn't towards the top of that list. I mean, that is just such a heavy, heavy, heavy yeah. riff. And, and you know, this is the third. Wow, actually, I think I guess it's probably the is it the fourth album where there's an acoustic song, like of an interlude. I, I guess kind of started on um, Master of Reality where we had. Uh, uh, embryo like well that's not really acoustic it was an embryo or orchid I, I think it might have been orchid mm -hmm. and then volume four we had laguna sunrise and then sabbath bloody sabbath we have fluff and then here we have don't start too late so it was become a tradition but i think one of the things that they realized was that the, to make things heavier you 
it's one thing to, to play a heavy riff, but to contrast some of these riffs and some of these songs by having a, a laid back or an acoustic interlude just made them all the more effective, you know, and, and definitely, you know, starting out with Hole in the Sky, that heavy riff, but, you know, very straightforward, very meat and potatoes, and then going into, you know, that very light, uh, but classically influenced uh, acoustic guitar segment, and then kicking it into Symptom of the Universe really made that beginning. When, when Symptom of the Universe comes in, it's so much more effective because of, of that acoustic, you might want to call it an intro, you know. So they, they're, they're, by this point, they were kind of masters of that whole, by contrast, making something that's already heavy, even heavier. Just, yeah. This is an example of, that, of them doing that again to, to great effect. I say that all the time. I've, I've said that on this podcast, probably for every album that we talk about, that it's that just that, the fact that they could have a song like Changes or a song like this Don't Start Too Late or Fluff or Laguna Sunrise and, and then have this, something like Under the Sun or Symptom of the Universe. Yeah. Uh, it just, the, the lighter stuff makes the heavier stuff sound all the more heavy and symptom of the universe is uh right up there it's just an absolutely killer riff uh, bill ward's drums all over this i love the the massive drum fill yeah yeah bill yeah. that's super cool this has some of my again geezer is geezer is in a zone and it really for me started on sabbath bloody sabbath with the lyrics and especially like uh spiral architect those kind of lyrics so I, I have the lyrics in front of me here i just love this line mother moon she's calling me back to her silver womb father of creation takes me from my stolen tomb seventh night the unicorn is waiting in the skies a symptom of the universe a love that never dies yeah <laughs> that's great great that's right up my alley when it comes to lyrics i love like sort of symbolism and you know what does that mean exactly you know mother mother moose you know all this like sort of symbolic type type lyrics but it still has this sort of geezer earthy uh you know symptom of the universe a love that never dies yeah <laughs> yeah and, and they asked him what the meaning of of uh the the song lyrics were because they are so abstract and creative he said it's about love. It, love is the symptom of the universe, which I don't particularly understand, but it's a nice sentiment. <laughs> but yeah, let's get back to Bill Ward's, uh, those fills, man, in, in that, I mean, you can't, can't talk about this song and not mention Bill Ward's drums. Um, it's incredible. You know, a lot of times, uh, and I've seen this in interviews where people will specifically ask Bill Ward how he came up with certain parts, uh, drum parts in certain songs. He, he always says, he always, he always credits it to the song and or the other musicians. And in this particular case, he does that again. And he says, you know, I, Geezer, what Geezer was playing, what Tony was playing, being in the moment, this is what I had to do. And this is what I did. Uh, I didn't plan it. He's like, nothing I've ever done. I've sat and planned. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this it all came along spontaneously. And this is a spontaneous thing. And you can hear that. I mean, there's no particular phrasing 
with, with these drum fills. I mean, it's just sporadic. It's all over the place. And it gives it a great live, spontaneous feel, which, which really works because, I mean, no matter how many times you hear it, it always has the same energy. You never start, to, it's one of those things where you die, you know, you listen to it. And, and some drummers, initially, some of the more flashy things that they do, you'll be impressed by because you really haven't wrapped your head around some of the phrasing yet. You're like, oh, okay, well, I see. There, there's a, a bit of a repetition here. There's, there's a bit of a pattern. With this, there is no pattern. It's, he is just throwing himself on the drums and it is all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And subsequently, every time that it was played live, it, it was phrased, you know, he did have, he did develop a pattern so that they can play this, um, which was a lot, a lot more subdued than how it comes, how it came across in the studio. But he, he said, you know, at 23, I could do this at 53, you know, it, it's a lot harder, even though I'm in good health and, you know, that that's debatable. But according to Bill, even though I'm in good health now, this song would be a challenge because there's so much energy that went into it um, just to keep up with that, that sort of stamina in that in that song on that part would, would be a challenge at 53 as opposed to 23. And I, I get that because, like I said, I mean, it's just. It, it's all energy. It's just it's energy. And, and even I think it occurs. I think it happens three times in the song. Each time it's different, you know? Yeah. So uh, it, and it's you're really kind cool. of on the edge of your seat. Like, yeah, is you going to mess come, up? Is it going to come out, <laughs> come out of this? Because it's just so frantic. And yeah. you know, I love, I think it's before the second or third verse. He's, he's doing all the crazy stuff. But then he sort of ends it with this like, dad, do, do, dad, do, do. Yeah. 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 So he starts, yeah, it runs out a little bit of steam. But it's still effective, you know, the heavy, heavy oh, hand. Wow. It's super boom, cool, man. Boom, yeah. Boom, boom, boom. yeah. And, and then, of course, at the end of the song, the, the jam, I mean, I think that's yeah. something. They said that was an improv in the studio. And it, it sounds like it was. It sounds like, you know, one of the jams that they may have done during an extended version of Wicked World or or the Sometimes I'm Happy song. It's a little different. Um, it's, it's kind of mellow. It, it makes for the song to be a lot longer um then maybe it needed to be but it moves along in a, in a pretty pretty nice fashion i'm kind of surprised that they didn't kind of separately track that last part of the song yeah they could have no. being that they did it with don't start too late and yeah this is something that yeah they, they could have probably because it never returns back to the symptom of the universe riff it really is sort of its own yeah thing and it's 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 sort of ties in with I, I i never really thought of this till right at this moment but all these sort of sudden shifts hole in the sky suddenly shifting to don't start too late don't start too late suddenly shifts to symptom of the universe symptom of the universe suddenly has this sort of shift into this latin acoustic section i always love the way like the chord gets held out and there's like an effect like where yeah and yeah. always in my mind i always sort of envision it's sort of the universe like you're sort of getting sucked into another dimension or something like that and you sort of come out and it's in this groovy yeah latin shakers going on and everything and, and it's it's almost like a major key sounding thing there where Ozzy's melody line is, is really almost sort of happy at this point where it was really like intense and dark 
in in symptom of the first part of symptom of the universe and here it's you know mother child of love's creation yeah. you know it takes on a little bit of a happier kind of uh, uh feel to it but. yeah but this, the lyrics still as abstract as they are in the first part so yeah. it, it, it kind of fits together yeah i mean you know when you think about what you're talking about with those those production enhancements it really makes the album what it is um it really gives the the album a lot more atmosphere and what's kind of really cool about that is you consider the album was basically self-produced i mean it was iomi and mike butcher um but really there wasn't an executive producer i mean typically that would have been patrick meehan but you know i mean how much was he really responsible for um band is going on record as saying she wasn't responsible for anything other than being there with a wallet open in case you know they need something <laughs> here or there but you know as far as all the production quality that this album and, and the last album too because i think that the same same team on sabbath bloody sabbath as there is on sabotage it's iomi and mike butcher really cool how they how they were able to to apply you know that that production creativity in this because it does definitely enhance the songs especially in a subtle way even when you're talking about that you know when it goes and trails into the to the jam and bill ward was experimenting with the backward symbol Thing. He did that a couple of times, and I think that is also in that that little effect that we were just talking about. So yeah, it's cool, great song. Yeah, and you know, and I, you could also maybe say that Geezer's lyrics at this point, they're 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 getting sort of at this time when I was hearing this, it was making me think of Ozzy's lyrics, which we now know were being written by Bob Daisley. Bob Daisley also had that way of like Revelation, Mother Earth. His, his lyrics weren't too far off from Geezer's lyrics. So as I mentioned in the Sabbath Bloody Sabbath episode, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and this album were the albums that really, I made a connection with Ozzy on these records and, and Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman. And some of that is with the lyrics too, with this whole like woman child of love's creation, you know, that kind of thing. I could sort of picture lyrics like that on believe that believer or revelation mother earth or, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I think that helped again, just draw me into the whole thing because I was so into diary of a madman and blizzard of Oz and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that wasn't, um, of, of Bob Daisley's lyrical contributions weren't inspired by geezers. Yeah, lyrics. But where was that sort of your point? That maybe that's what kind of influenced the direction. Yeah, that I never was... really thought about it, but just as a, as the, the twelve or thirteen year old me, I was making that connection with like yeah. these sort of earthy but psychedelic abstract lyrics that were on Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and Sabotage, and they they felt very similar to me to some of the lyrics that were on Blizzard and Diary. Whereas like lyrics like Iron Man and stuff like that, I wasn't hearing that on Blizzard and Diary. I was hearing more of the SATO than the Believer and that Revelation Mother Earth and that kind of like Mr. Crowley and the scary, symbolic, earthy, but still peace and love, mm -hmm. you know, type of lyrics. And uh, so there was a connection 
there for me. Sonically, musically, there was the connection with the layered guitars and also lyrically that this, I think, what made Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and Sabotage feel to me like I could see the connection now between Blizzard of Oz and Dire of Madman and where Ozzy had come from. Whereas I, the first Black Sabbath album, I don't, I don't, that and Diary of a Madman don't, I wasn't able to connect those dots no. when I was 12 years old, but I could between Sabotage and a song like Symptom of the Universe, I could connect that to, you know, it yeah. like that could be a riff that Randy could have, could have written, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think this album connects really well with Blizzard of Oz, actually, from, from the guitar tonality to uh, the songs themselves. Uh, it, it, of, of any Black Sabbath album, I think this one probably connects probably the strongest to what Ozzy would go on to do in his solo stuff early on with Blizzard and Diary. Um, but again, I mean, Ozzy wasn't really responsible for a lot of those factors. So somebody, I think that could have very well have been Bob Daisley, could have been Lee Kersley, could have been management influence. But somebody seemed to be make the correlation between um, the Black Sabbath years and how some of that could be applied to the Ozzy Osbourne solo band sound. Yeah, and the image that they were trying to portray Ozzy as. Yeah. He still had that Prince of Darkness, the, the album covers for Diary and Blizzard, you know, still had that sort of Sabbathy, dark, you know, skulls and bat wings and stuff like that uh, mm -hmm. vibe to it. So it makes sense that if Bob was sitting down and trying to figure out what lyrical direction to go in, yeah. this is kind of what Ozzy was known for was for sure. these, yep. these type of things. So, all right. So next megalomania, this, this is a real great man, really creepy, uh, dark sounding song. You're, you were talking about, some of the studio trickery. I always loved the the way uh, Ozzy's voice would come in on the verses. Like it's like a reverse. I don't know. I don't know what you would say. Like a reverse delay or something. Where it's like obsessed, 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 obsessed with you know the way those those lines come in like that. Ozzy's like melody on this, and when it gets heavier, uh, it's it's just it's it's a really intense. Uh, it's a really intense uh, song and the lyrics are real sort of creepy. I hide myself inside the shadows of shame. The silent symphonies were playing their game, you know, just really great. Uh, how could this poison be the dream of my soul? Like when that section kicks in, it's just, it's, it's so intense and heavy. It's a, uh, it's a really, really great song. Yeah, great lyrics. Um, and this is one of the first times that the whole subject matter of the legal, the business issue uh, starts to present itself. And this was actually, you know, we, we talk about how this album was largely influenced by what they were going through legally, but there's really only two songs that really pertain to that situation specifically. This is one and the other is, as we'll get to later, the writ. But this was... Um, yeah, I mean, Geezer's lyrics again, and uh, it was basically while they're in this situation, Geezer's interpretation of the situation from the outsider looking in. Um, and, and I guess in some ways they, they kind of felt like they were watching this all unfold, this all happen. And it was pretty cool that they could capture some of that 
historical context and put it, like I said before, put it in a creative, roll it up in a creative thing and put it on this album because it definitely comes across very artistic. Uh, there's an emotional aspect to it too from the different movements that take place as the song progresses. The beginning, really cool. It has that almost mystical intro. Um, and again, credit to the production quality to make that as effective as, as it is, as it sounds. Great segue into it. And with Ozzy, with the echo coming in, obsess, 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 obsess. Yeah. Really, really cool effect. And uh, it starts it out, it, you know, it, it vamps into, into the song. It gives it uh, a lot more effectiveness. Um, but it's yeah. a great song, great riff by Iomi, great playing. Again, Ozzy's voice is really on point. Um, this is definitely the pinnacle of, I, I, I think, Ozzy's voice in general, Ozzy's singing, because after this, it starts to go downhill a little bit. Yeah, I always love the part in the song when it does that, feel it slipping away, because there's like a lower voice that comes in, it's like, feel it slipping away. Yeah, I wanted to mention that. What is that like, a, I, I didn't find any info on that. It sounds almost demonic, like there's a, a harmonized low voice yeah. on that. It sounds like what they did was is that they he sang it and then they slowed it down rather yeah. than him just singing it in that range. Man, that sounds it sounds like they they actually somehow manipulated it. Yeah, give it like this feel. It sounds like it has a yeah, like a. I know, but they didn't have to do that or something. What was <laughs> they didn't have to do that? It would have been just as effective. But the fact that they did it is amazing because it just it gives this whole it gives that part such a. So, so much more uh, depth. It's like, it really feels like, I mean, when, when I was a kid, uh, like 12 or something, 13, I was listening to it. Like, I, it sounded like it was Satan singing it in the background. Yeah, it's really That's creepy. Dark yeah. voice. It's one of the more creepier uh, yeah. Sabbath songs. And it's, it's, it's a fairly long song too. And it is. yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a definitely a really cool one. All right, uh, Thrill of It All. This is kind of a, this is if I, uh, did we do a Deep Cuts Black Sabbath thing on my YouTube channel? I can't remember. If we did, if, did, I, did I put this song on there? If I didn't, why didn't I? We because didn't do a, we, no, we didn't do a Black Sabbath Deep Cuts. We did the ranking of every album. Okay. And I think uh, we both well, we did a Deep Cuts episode, Thrill of It All would be on there for me. Yeah. I, I love the sort of uh funky like drum beat to a da 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 and i love there's those hand claps in it where it's like da 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 and his melody line i love when ozzy does that thing where he starts low and jumps up really high like he yeah. does it in sabbath bloody sabbath mm -hmm. he's done it in his solo career like so inclination of yeah. direction you know where he just he just sort of slides uh, up to that really upper part of his range and that's just yeah. a cool cool little yeah little man I could, it gives me the chills every time uh won't you help me mr jesus won't you yeah. help me if you can yeah. That's it. That's we that. See this right world there. we live in. Do you still believe in man? Yeah, that's great that. lyric. Um, yeah, it's a great song, and Ozzy delivers it very convincingly. I'm sure he didn't write the lyrics. At least he wasn't credited with writing the lyrics to this song. But um, 
Yeah, very effective. And it, it's just a simple, simple structure, simple riff, um, but really effective. And everybody uh, just pulls it all together and makes it the great song that it is. Yeah. Yeah, and when it changes into that bomb, 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 like sort of towards the mm -hmm. end there, it goes into like a major key sounding, yeah. uh, sounding type of thing. And the lyrics, uh, uh, you know, it just, it goes into a totally different feel, something that, that Black Sabbath has mastered at this point, you know, where they can yeah. sort of have these, these super heavy riffs. And then it just sort of does this, this, this gear change into a, uh, a whole different, uh, a whole different vibe, a whole different feel. I also love at the beginning of the song. This is just sort of something really precious about the way people recorded in the '70s. So if you listen to Iommi playing that the riff when the main riff kicks in, da 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 da, da he sort of rushes the second part of the riff. And you can hear Bill Ward clicking on the on the hi-hat very lightly. So he's going da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He's like doing that in the background, but I only jumps ahead a little bit for a second and he stops clicking his hi-hats and then he starts clicking again when I only gets back in on it. And in this day and age with computers and pro tools, they would have never have let that slide. To no, fix that on the computer, they would have nudged it over. They would have corrected it. But back then, that's just how people did stuff. They probably listened back and somebody went, oh, you jumped ahead a little bit. Ah, oh, but who cares? It sounds cool. You know, they, yeah. it's just the way they did things back then. And, and, and it's just it's just so cool that they would leave yeah. something like that. And it was just the band, as, as we heard, listening to the uh, volume four uh, outtakes, the box mm -hmm. set outtakes, you, you get to hear them in the studio just. Yeah they do this they did this stuff live the basic tracks and uh you know that's just the way people rolled back then yeah it was very <laughs> organic I mean, you got to respect that um i also respect the fact that it captures on tape the sometimes the conflict between guitar players and drummers where a drum uh, drummer could could count off on hi-hat or as a four count and somehow things still get out of whack how, <laughs> how is that how does that happen uh, I like that that is it kind of captured here. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, it, it's noticeable and interesting and um, pretty cool. Pretty cool because it definitely is very human organic as opposed to modern times where, yeah, that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have heard that. It would have, it would have occurred in the studio most likely, depending on how it was recorded and depending on who was in the studio at the time. But I get the impression that the band was probably playing at the same time. And... Uh, and that's probably not something that happens all that often these days. Probably, you know, yeah. record to a click track and everybody goes from there. Uh, here, Bill was the click track. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's how they did it. So a cool deep cut for sure. All right, next, Super Czar. I always never was 100% sure how you pronounced this because it's really spelt kind of strange here. Super Czar, I, I never really know. What's your take on the... I pronounce it super czar. T-Z-A-R is pronounced czar, as in czar, climate change. John Carrier is our current climate change czar. I think that's, <laughs> one, but that's one reference. So super czar, super yeah, czar. And, and as I've mentioned in other uh, episodes, I'm a sucker anytime there's tolling bells 
and choirs, especially choirs that are just singing ahs. <laughs> They're not really singing words. So that's basically what this whole song is here. This sort of Carmina Burana, Carl yeah. Orff, uh, creepy thing. It would become the band's intro really from this point out. Uh, Again, here's another connection with my 12-year-old brain, this and Diary of a Madman with the choir and Diary of a Madman. So I was just, yeah, I just love it. And it gives it, again, that sort of creepy, sort of scary, especially when the riff goes into that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And when it goes back into that man, just super. It's so incredible. It it is, and I'm thinking about it now. Um, so so credit to the band, full credit to the band for putting this together. This does not get credited to somebody in post-production who put this together. They did this collectively um it started out with a riff that iomi had that they really couldn't take anywhere but they thought it was a cool riff so they're like well you know we got to try to find a place for this um he did develop it to that other part it went from from the beginning riff to to that part but didn't really go anywhere other than that and it really wasn't enough to make it into the same kind of a, the same type of song that would be elsewhere on the album. So with this, they recorded it, and then uh, again, Will Malone was involved. Is that what his name is? Let me look here. Will Malone, yeah, Will Malone, English Chamber Choir, arranged by Will Malone. So Will Malone, again, he was on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, brought him back to do this. He helped out with Superzar, um, but. The band had all the phrasing. They didn't have anything written, um, but you know they sang the parts, and uh, Will basically took their ideas and applied it to what he had the, the choir do, and it all came together. Bill was having a lot of fun. He was banging on the timpanis. Um, some vibra slap was in this. Um, yeah, I mean he was just going to town, incorporating a lot of different types of percussion. He was having a good time with it. So they basically started out with that riff that they really couldn't find a purpose for, really couldn't find a home for. This this became the home. And as they build up with the choir and everything, funny story, I'm sure you've heard it too, that Ozzy arrived at the studio late and the chamber choir was coming in as he pulled up and he thought he was in the wrong studio. So <laughs> he got back in his car and he left. Because <laughs> he did, you know, what are all these people doing here at a black set? Bike Sabbath session. So he thought he was in the wrong studio. He turned around and left. And then they called him and he came back and he said, Oh man, I was confused. I didn't know what all these people were doing. No, it's great. Uh, yeah. So cool so friends of the band, they they just textured and layered this thing until it became what it is, until it became the song that's on the album. And man, it 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 it's a dark song. It it, it could almost be a, kind of a scary song. I remember as a kid listening to it on a Walkman and headphones, you know, in bed or something with all the lights out. It was like, oh man, it was creepy. Uh, but it does have a classical influence. It, it sounds very, uh, reminds me of Wagner. It has that almost militant aspect to it, you know, uh, in, in a classical context. Yeah, very for cool. sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's like a part in there where the drums sort of do almost like a military style yeah. thing underneath it again, reminiscent of Diary of a Madman. And it's, it's just a great intro tape. And even Ozzy, when he would go solo, he would use the Carmina Burana intro tape, which sounds very similar. Yeah. This well, I mean, sure yeah, even well beyond the Ozzy years, I mean, they were using it as the opener for, for the Dio era, too. And I think so when I saw him with Tony Martin, Martin, even with Tony Martin, yeah, it was, yeah, they're still using it. So, I mean, it definitely got a lot of mileage out of it. And it's always effective, man. It's a, it's a great, great soundtrack to, uh, to an intro tape for the band. For sure. Uh, all right. Am I going insane radio? It's funny as a kid, I, I never understood the whole radio part in the title. And it wasn't until years later where I read, I guess that's, I don't know if that's a brummy slang or if it's just English slang for uh, insane, like this guy's gone radio. Uh, so as a kid, I had no idea what this meant. Like, am I going insane radio? I'm thinking, yeah like FM radio with this. I, I thought it meant that it was a radio edit, uh, but it, it's not because it's called, am I going insane radio on the album? I'm looking right at the album. It's written, it's written on the album. But when I first saw it, it was on, like I said, uh, we sold our souls for rock and roll. And I, I thought from there that it was a radio edit for the compilation radio. I still don't really understand the reference or the connection between radio and, and insane or, or, or mental. I, I, I read that it's Cockney slang for mental because there was a, I guess in, in the town of Birmingham, there was a store or building that was called Radio Rental. Somehow that was connected to being mental because it rhymed. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. But that is the reference that radio represents that rhyme slang term from the black country that they applied to this song so this is ozzy's song um he has this moog that he bought somewhere around the beginning of uh was it volume four or was it the beginning of or was it uh, volume four sabbath because sabbath. Yeah. of who are you yeah yeah that's when right so it was around the time of stuff so he still has this moog and he's he's still messing around with it and uh and this is one of the things that he came up with. Uh, the lyrics are his. And, uh, and and as we were talking about things that would kind of influence the Ozzy's solo career, this is one of the things that established that madman reputation, that their persona that he adopted, that he was the crazy guy, he's out from the asylum, you know, rock and roll madman. He's lost his mind. This is one of the things that was sort of what one of the one of the building blocks of that persona that that he constructed this is his song and i'm sure he probably did have battles with mental issues based on all the substances and the alcohol and the tension and the uh stress of everything that was involved with being on the road and in the studio and legal hassles and everything else i'm sure it was a pretty pretty trying lifestyle so i think it probably was sincere probably did wonder about his sanity, considering everything that was going on. But this is his song, as I said, uh, built on his Moog synthesizer, which is kind of funny to think about because I get the impression it was sort of like a toy that sometimes when he was bored, he'd bust <laughs> out this Moog and start pecking at the keys. And then, you know, basically ultimately arrive at something that he thought was good enough to show the other band members. And 
you know, and I, they evidently liked it. And it's a cool song. As I said, though, it's, it's not it's not one of the songs that I would pull off this album and put on a compilation. Well, it's interesting. This is I just double checked this. This was released as a single in Britain. OK. Yeah. So that's was probably the logic behind why I, I this might have been the only single released from this album. And so that maybe was the logic for why it landed up on the We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll yeah. compilation. But yeah, like it's it's a strange, strange song. It's like a very, if the melody line and the sort of the chord progression, it's very happy, but the, the subject matter is about somebody going insane. So it's really kind of a dark subject matter. So there's this weird contrast between and the tones with the synthesizers and everything make it sound yeah. real, like sort of like a crazy, creepy clown type of a vibe. You know, it's sort of, it's scary. It's supposed to be happy, but it's still very sort of scary sounding. And of course the end of the song, when it, when it breaks into the, to the weird laughter yeah. and everything that really scared me as a kid. <laughs> Sort of like this killer, scary clown looking up from the yeah. street. Yeah, it's street really cool. Grid. I always wondered about that. And a few years ago, I was I was doing some research trying to figure out. So was that lifted from a movie? Was that was that a soundtrack from something that they lifted to put in there? It was actually, it was a friend of theirs that it, there was there was two people involved in that. And one was a friend of theirs. His name was Adrian. It was an Australian friend of theirs that did the crazy wow, wow. And, and there was another track where he's doing the laughter the the real like the the wailing crying type you know like desperate sound that accompanies that laughter is Ozzy's daughter Jessica from his first marriage uh with was her name Thelma his his daughter crying and they slowed it down dropped the pitch wow and uh and, and they said it was kind of disturbing to hear it because you know they it, Jessica was sometimes would accompany Ozzy in the studio or sometimes he'd be with her and they, they all love Jessica and they said she was a really sweet girl when they did that and they slowed it down and she sounded so sorrowful and wailing like oh this is horrible it's scary because before that it's sort of silly sounding laughter and then yeah. that sort of wailing scream that's off in the distance and the yeah. if the funny clown sounding type laughter <laughs> that stuff uh -huh. starts to fade away and all you're left with is the wailing yeah thing and then that ominous bass like has an effect on it yeah. comes in of the writ, you know, and the yeah. way it sort of segues right right into that. It's just really, uh, really creepy and really scary. Yeah. Again, that contrast from, am I going insane? Mm -hmm. you know, sort of it, it, and it sort of makes sense too, if somebody's going insane in their brain, all these different personalities going off at the same time. And then it leads into the writ, probably the angriest we're talking about the two songs written about their legal problems. Well, this is, mm -hmm. this is really the one where they, they really pour out all their anger and, and yeah. hatred into this particular song. And this is, this is a pretty angry, aggressive song. Starts off real ominous with that bass, but when that main, when Ozzy kicks in with the riff and everything, it gets, it gets intense really quick. Yeah, and again, credit to the production quality, the production uh, aspect of this 
of that transition from now going insane radio to the red when just exactly what you're talking about the way that the bass comes in very subdued and ominous and and dark and then it, you know the laughter coming it almost sounds like it was like a like a clown like a maniacal clown but then gets into this kind of a disturbing mental patient with you know the the whale and then you could hear the whale getting louder and then starts to fade off into the distance and then up from the bottom comes this bubbling bass tone you know that comes in and it's quiet but it's it's ominous and it's sinister sounding and then all of a sudden it slams in and ozzy comes in what kind of people do you think we are you know and it just it just smacks you in the face so effective and again this is like an ozzy double shot because these lyrics were credited credited to ozzy um, oh, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Ozzy wrote these lyrics. They let it go. I mean, it might have been a little tweak here and there by Geezer, but he doesn't he doesn't take credit for anything. Ozzy gets full credit for the lyrics. And it said when pretty much, you know, as the the sessions went went along and all these things started happening, where they would be in trying to get things done, trying to work on this album, and it was like. It was a passive aggressive thing by Meehan because he didn't want them to complete the album. So he set up as many roadblocks as he could. And he made the band, or particularly Ozzy, uh, you know, really aggravated. And they're trying to get things done. They're trying to move things along. They're on their own now. They got ripped off. They're the victims, like, you know, and, and he felt really uh, picked on, I guess, and, and angry. And they're just trying to get through this album. And then, and, you know, he comes in the studio and there's lawyers outside the door trying to give him subpoenas and they get inside and they're in the control room getting everything set up. And then lawyers come in and then or they get something in the mail and it's something that distracts their attention away from what they were going to do that day and puts them in another mindset that's completely devoid of anything creative or musical. And so one of these sessions, you know, the music was was formed, uh, you know, the, the, the basic foundation of the song was there. Um, a lot of times, and, and we heard, like you mentioned the volume four, where you can hear from the outtakes, the band was actually writing the songs in the studio. And I think that's what was happening here, because from what I heard, what I read actually, was that Ozzy would hear the band sometimes in the next room by the band, it would be Tony, Geezer, and, and, and uh, Bill, and they'd be working on something, be jamming on something. And he'd be out and he'd, you know, he'd be in there for a little while listening and then he'd walk out and he'd make tea, biscuits, and then he'd drink some tea and he'd come in with, in, with the tea and the biscuits for the other guys. And then depending on what where they were, what he heard, he would then sometimes just go up to the mic and just start, you know, um, uh, improvis improvisationally singing some lines. He did that, he developed the melody and he went, left the room, went back into the other room, sat at the desk, or the table and wrote out the lyrics, went back in, sang them, and then that that was the lyrics to to the writ. And they're great lyrics, you know. I mean, yeah. Ozzy, it just proved positive that Ozzy Ozzy didn't just depend on other people to do all the work for him. Ozzy did did write some lyrics. Yeah, and uh, it's funny as a kid, I didn't know what a writ was. It's, it's a legal papers but as a kid I was trying to figure out what you know I wonder what that means and uh, I always love the part in the song too when it does the rats yeah rats <laughs> I always thought that was great yeah and you don't know what it what it what it means until you until you understand that 
it's they're talking about management they're talking about business and rats yeah yeah as a kid i had no idea i didn't know i just i was just thought it sounded cool and thought something maybe a writ is some sort of i don't know ancient thing or something i had no idea as a a 12 year old what a writ was yeah so it's funny because if you're not aware of any of this stuff with the legal things it does it does hold its own it does you know you're looking at the song titles and things and you really wouldn't otherwise suspect that there was there was this legal thing this conflict going on in the background uh and you get to the written you're like okay well that's kind of a peculiar name for a song but you know it, it could pertain to a lot of different things but it is it's it, it's curiously suspect of something else going on for the first time in this album that really is what clues you in and then when you hear that oh well the band were really embroiled in this legal battle with their former manager that they were suing and he was suing them and it was going back and forth and like okay now that makes sense now i get why they have a song called the writ but it really is the only really indication that there was any outside influence going on while this album was being uh, made yeah, and I love the whole part where it sort of breaks into this almost like harpsichord, like uh, upbeat, very bright sounding thing. Too many people oh, yeah. advising me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and again, you're right, as the lyrics, you can just sort of interpret them in so many different ways. But yeah. And yeah, then. And then we have the bonus track. Yeah, you think that the album is over. And as well, kid, wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so in the background, for those that aren't aware, in the background, there's right after the writ, maybe 15, 20 seconds or so after the song ends, you hear somebody playing a piano singing, blow on a jug, blow on a jug, like a little ballroom uh, sort of stride piano thing yeah it's so low in the mix you can barely hear it actually i i have this uh this first pressing on nems 75 issue of nems and and it's also on the the warner brothers version it's a little lower in the in the mix or on the master on the warner brothers as opposed to the to the nems but you can you can clearly hear it and and the story behind that was they were just messing around bill and ozzy were just messing around Bill's on the piano and Ozzy and Bill are singing simultaneously, but it's, that's Bill on the piano. Blow yeah. on a Jug is the name of it. And it's actually on the, uh, let me look. I, I, I'm not sure if it's, if it's on the, uh, the album label for the, uh, well, actually this is the Warner Brothers I have in my hand. No, no it's, it's, it's not. not on, it's not credited on the Warner Brothers, but it is, it is on the record label for the, uh, the NEMS, it does say blow on a jug. It does really? Wow. Because I remember my cassette didn't have it listed. My Warner Brothers vinyl doesn't have it listed. And it's it's pretty far in the background on the uh on the cassette. It's it's buried down there pretty low. You really have to listen for it. It would be easy to to miss it. And I remember some early pressings of the CD. Some of them had it on it, some of them didn't, and that was really a topic of discussion in the early days on the Black Sabbath forum where people would were all up in arms about how certain CD versions didn't have blow on a jug on it. It felt like you were getting ripped off by not having that little 15 seconds of blow on a jug. No, I I, no, I I made a mistake. It isn't on the NEMS either. So it's not credited on the album at all. 
Uh, yeah, so just a weird sort of little curiosity. It is, but it's cool. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, it's a cool little fun, fun thing. All right. Uh, well, that's that's the album. Uh, maybe of note too, I mentioned in the the intro for the show that one of the uh, more popular, most popular bootlegs you could say from the from the uh, '70s era of the band, the original Aussie era is a show that was recorded for the King Biscuit Flower Hour from this tour. The King Biscuit Flower Hour, for those who don't know, was a syndicated radio show that I, I don't remember if it aired weekly or monthly or what the deal was with it was, but they would record concerts and they recorded Sabbath at Asbury Park. And you can hear clips from this on, uh, from this Asbury Park show, since it was recorded for radio, it was recorded very professionally, maybe not quite as professional as a band making a proper live album, but it was still recorded very professionally. So it's a great sounding uh, bootleg. And there are a couple songs from it on the Past Lives compilation that Black Sabbath put out. Uh, so many years ago, I think uh, Megalomania. Did they do? Did they do Hole in the Sky? Yeah. Of the Universe at that show. So it's a bootleg. If you're unfamiliar with it, we highly encourage you to to check it out because the band's really on fire. It's a great set list. Uh, the recording quality of it is really good. Ozzy sounds sounds great on it. He's for the most part hitting all the notes. Megalomania, he ducks out here and there and drops a little bit lower just yeah. to cover it. He just sort of gives up at some points, but he still sounds good on it. And the set list is great. The band is really good. And uh, we have hopes that uh, when they do this sabotage, we're hoping they do a sabotage deluxe box. And when they do, we sort of have our fingers crossed that we might get a get this show fully uh, put out there on uh, CD and, and vinyl because it is really a great, great show. Yeah. Maybe for the 70s era of the band, maybe this in Paris 70, which was recorded for, uh, a, that was also recorded for a TV show. So that's why the audio quality on that one is so, so good. This is, this is probably one of the best sonically sounding bootlegs from, from the 70s. Yeah, and it's a great era for the band because Ozzy is at his, at his highest point uh with his voice um and you get a lot of nice set lists i forget what the full set list is for that show you get, that, yeah it's you like get three songs from sabotage you get uh, some stuff from so i think you get killing yourself to live i think viral architect is on Spiral it too. architect is on there yeah so there it's a really great set list if, ever, if people haven't heard it and, and most most black sabbath fans at this point at this stage of the game have already heard it there's, there's a lot of lp bootlegs that you know, are on all over eBay and, and places online where you can find there's a couple different there's a, there's a, there's a double disc 10 inch LP not LP but a 10 inch vinyl version that that was floating around on the internet that people were buying up. Uh, I own a copy of 12 inch single album. There is a bootleg that came out probably about 10 or 15 years ago, double vinyl. Uh, of, of the entire set, which is really hard to find now. I think it's like hundreds and hundreds of dollars to buy that. Um, thing about this is that I, I was always under the assumption that it was recorded by the King Biscuit Flower Hour, but the story behind this is that it was submitted to the King Biscuit Flower Hour, not by the original taper, but by somebody who acquired a, um, 
a master or first generation recording from someone else and submitted it to the King Biscuit Flower Hour, who initially rejected it because they hadn't really, they kind of skimmed over it. And then um, they wrote back and they rejected it and said it wasn't quite the quality that they would broadcast. And then they kind of went back on it after they listened to the whole thing. And I think it actually did eventually go on as part of the King Biscuit Flower Hour show. Don't know who the original taper is. That, 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 that's the strange thing about it. And it was originally when it was presented, when it was sent to King Biscuit, it was credited from being recorded at the Philadelphia Spectrum, but it wasn't. It was Asbury Park, New Jersey. I don't know what the name of the venue was, but um, yeah, uh, I don't think it was soundboard. I, it, it, if so, um, it doesn't sound like anything that was typically soundboard at the time. I think you can hear the audience a bit, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's one of the, one of the best bootleg Black Sabbath shows that that exist, and as, as a Sabbath fan, as, as as most people know, you know it's it's a must-have. Another thing in this time period, and um, again, most Black Sabbath fans have already seen it: um, the Don Kirshner rock concert performance in Costa Mesa, California, as part of the U.S. branch leg of the tour, um, is really cool. You know, with the uh, plastic snowflakes coming down, yeah, yeah, yeah. snow blind. Five songs, I think. Is that what it is? That yeah, what it, that's what I looked up. Killing yourself they, to live. I think they open up with. Killing uh, yourself to live. They do hole in the sky. Uh, don't they? they do paranoid and war pigs, and I forget what the we're missing. Snow blind. Snow blind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, with regard to these deluxe box sets, I mean, I, I think they're. I think they're being. They've been pretty successful. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people are buying them. And uh, if they continue to do this, and there's no reason why I guess they should. I don't know what the production, I don't know what the manufacturing costs are of these things, but they're they're really cool. You know, they usually have, they have a remaster of the album. There's usually bonus discs of either live stuff or outtakes. There's usually a book of some sort, whether in the form of like a historical context or uh, reproduction of a tour program, a poster, something like that. If they were to keep doing this pattern of, of re-releasing these albums in this box bonus deluxe thing, they could certainly do a lot with this. I don't know if there's any outtakes that are available from this session, but I'd be really curious to hear them because of the, of the great production quality of the album in its completed form. I, I'd like to hear the, the raw in yeah. the studio tracks like that were on the volume four i'd like to hear yeah. how these songs came together i think that there will be because at this point as with really starting with volume four they had the budget they had the time in the studio before yeah. that the first album paranoid master of reality those were done a little bit quicker basically live on the floor for mm -hmm. the most part, but volume four, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and Sabotage were ones that they experimented a lot in the studio. And I think that that's why there were so many outtakes yeah. from the volume four session. And I think that as you're gonna go on, I think there's gonna be plenty of outtakes for Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and the same thing for Sabotage. And like you said, I think it'll be real fascinating to kind of hear these songs in a more of a uh, stripped down form without all the overdubs and stuff like that. And the perfect packaging would be that Asbury Park uh, show 
at which they have the rights to because they put out some of those songs on past lives. And if possible, something with that Don Kirshner's rock concert. It makes me wonder if they filmed more songs for that. I'm sure they did. Uh, so maybe there's more songs laying around for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe even if they just took the audio from that and gave you that Asbury Park show plus the Don Kirshner show, that would really be incredible because it's Kirshner show. They're, they're just on fire. Yeah. On that one too. There's just a ton of energy. Ozzy sounds great. The crowd is going bananas. I, I, I would, yeah, I would love to see the video. I, I think the video portion of it would be really cool to have because it, it would, you know, this is where they started to have a stage set. I don't know. Did you, have you heard anything about the Bill Ward shell? The yeah. shell that was around the back of his drum set. Have you, did you hear anything about that? We, in pictures, you can see that there's a big shell that comes up. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that was, that was, and, and inside the shell is a cross and it has right. a big silver cross and there's a lot of little crosses on top of it. Well, one of the, the road crew's parents or father made a coffin and then the coffin was only used to bring out this cross and the cross was taken out, it was assembled and it was put behind Bill Ward. But further behind that, they had this big fiberglass shell and this fiberglass shell was intended not just for, for you know stage presence, but so that it would it goes around bill and it would get the back of his drums and project it out in front and it also stops some of the feedback from tony's and geezer's amps from going into bill's mics so it would sort of like project the bill ward's drums outward in front of the amps so that the ideally the drums were more audible in the from the audience but uh the Bill Ward shell, yeah. I don't know if it was 100% effective. I mean, it certainly sounded like a good idea in theory. Bill Ward says that it was. He doesn't regret having the shell. And then the other thing that was part of it, he always had flowers. Uh, there was like carnations, and that was on the rider that they had uh -huh. flowers to decorate Bill's drums. And by this time, his drum set was like a 24-piece or 15-piece yeah, yeah. drum set. He had drums all over the place. And it was adorned with these flowers. And he said that we're looking at it, it kind of gave it sort of a macabre image of like a funeral procession, which sort of like built into the, or played into the doom and gloom aspect of Sabbath music. But uh, <laughs> the roadies always complained about having to move Bill's shell from show to show, pack it up. Yeah, and they were dressing awesome. too, like sort of like the Sabotage album cover, maybe not quite that extreme, but they were dressing in a very- yeah. They were dressing up at this point, whereas the earlier years, they were kind of more just, you know, street clothes. But here they started dressing up in sort of like 70s bell bottoms and the boots and stuff like that. And I think that that's cool. It's just, it's so that Don Kirshner rock show, they they look cool, the, yeah. just the great set list and everything. So we cross our fingers that the sabotage box set will, uh, that meet all of our, our of our wishes. <laughs> it's there. I mean, if they it's want to there. do it, they, they have the materials, they can put it together. It just depends. Yeah. All right. So uh, any final thoughts on, on Sabotage? Nah, I'm good. I think we covered just about everything. Uh, you know, it, Sabotage is, is a very popular album. It's where a lot of people say that you don't need to go beyond this point. I disagree. 
And when we get into our next installment of Technical Ecstasy, I'll explain for a long time. <laughs> Aaron's been waiting for the Technical Ecstasy episode. He's I'll been yeah. jumping at the bit. Yep, I'll explain in great detail why they're wrong. But for a lot of people, for their money, this is where you don't need to go any further. This is the, the sixth Black Sabbath studio album. And you can, in air quotes, only trust the first six <laughs> Black Sabbath albums. I'm not going to get into that till the next episode. Nah, that t-shirt, but we will be talking about that <laughs> t-shirt. It still bothers me to this day. So, yeah, we can draw a line here so that everybody, you know, who is in that school of thought can now say that we've covered every album that's important. Now for the real diehard Black Sabbath fans moving forward, we'll get into the real nitty gritty, the real fans, that's right. all the albums that the fun really, is just, really matter. The fun is just getting started for that's everybody right. out that's there. Right. So make sure you are here for our next episode where we will be covering technical ecstasy. We cannot it's a, wait. It'll be a big one. Yep. Yep. All right. So we'd like to thank everybody out there for listening, for listening to the past episodes and uh, supporting us here at Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. So go on over to our Facebook page, leave some comments there. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.